chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink, for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The word of the Lord. Well, a popular phrase in our household these days is, wow, that's a really nice picture. That's pretty. That's beautiful. But what we really want to say is, what is it? Have you ever gone to an art exhibit? And really the thing on your mind is, well, what is it? And who would possibly pay that amount for that? I know I'm not very artistic, and so when I experience those types of things, the thing on my mind usually is, well, what is the artist trying to get across here? What is in this picture? Well, this question, what is it, is a relevant question for us as Christians, because the question is, what is it to live as a Christian? There's a lot of confusion today over what it means to live like a Christian. Maybe you've heard the phrase, well, you're just doing the really good Christian thing right now. And you heard that phrase maybe said to someone, you thought to yourself, well, is that the Christian thing to do? Or isn't it the Christian thing to do? There's a lot of confusion around what's the Christian thing to do. So the next three weeks, we're going to try and unpack what is it to live as a Christian? What does it mean to practice our faith? What we have here in Romans chapter 12 is basically a bundle of exhortations from God's word, a bunch of sentences, sentence after sentence, that is basically giving us a description of the life God wants us to live. But before we get into the exhortations, we have to understand where this comes from. So it starts in verse 1 of Romans chapter 12, and Romans chapter 12 begins with a simple word, therefore. 
therefore, basically means that he's saying, hey, in light of everything I just wrote in the beginning of the letter. So the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, everything I just, in light of everything I wrote in chapters 1 through 11, which is packed full of doctrine, teaching about sin, teaching about the righteousness of God, teaching about how we are justified through faith in Christ, teaching about our future glorification, and then teaching about the sovereignty of God. The book of Romans is packed with stuff. And there's a famous preacher that unpacked the book of Romans over 12 years in the one book. 12 years. We're not going to spend 12 years on the, on the book of Romans, but you could spend a lot of time. That's how much stuff is in there. And basically, the Apostle Paul's getting to a point in the letter where he's saying, hey, in light of all of this truth that I'm teaching, now this is how I want you to live. Or in other words, he's saying, as a response to God's mercy, that's what he says here, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, in response to what God has done for you, this is what we want you to do. You see, the Christian life is a responsive life. Everything we do as a Christian is a response to God. Everything in chapter 12 here, you are not doing to get God's attention. God does not say, abhor what is evil so that you get my attention. We abhor what is evil because of a response, because of what God has already done for us. Everything is a response to God's mercy, to God's grace. We're not earning anything. We're not getting God's attention. We already have that. It says in Romans chapter 8, earlier in the letter, that what can separate us from the love of God? Neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We can't do these things to get more love from God. What we're challenged to do is live in response to the love that God has shown. So he starts by saying, therefore, in light of all of God's mercies, do this. And so then he starts out by saying, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, God is saying, hey, in response to what I have done, offer your life as a life of worship. We are supposed to live lives of worship. The challenge for us is, most of us, when we hear the word worship, we think of piano, guitar, music, 20 minutes of singing. We think of worship as a set time on Sunday morning. But worship is meant to be a lifestyle. The word simply means express honor, to give worth to someone. So to live a life of worship is to express worthiness to God all the time, to honor God in all that we do. And God's word is saying, hey, Offer yourself to God. He uses the language here, offer your body as a living sacrifice. And so what he's doing is he's using language that the readers would be familiar with. So the people receiving this letter were religious people very familiar with Old Testament Jewish heritage. So they would know what temple worship is like. And in temple worship, the thing that was central of everything was sacrifice. So at each worship service, somebody brought something an animal to sacrifice. You didn't have worship without sacrifice. And so now the Apostle Paul's pointing back and he's saying, hey, you're not bringing an animal anymore. What you are offering for sacrifice is your life. Basically what you're saying is put your life on the altar of God and say, I am yours. In light of everything God has done for you, the least that you can do is go to God and say, God, I offer you all my body. I offer you all of my life here I am. So all of our life is supposed to be a life of worship. 
And then the rest of the chapter is unpacking what would it look like to live a life of worship. And he starts here by giving us instruction, basically, on how we initiate a life of worship. So in verse 2, he says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. He's basically saying, hey, you have to watch out. You're going to fall into a pattern, and that pattern is going to reflect the ways of the world rather than the ways of God. God's got a little insight into how we're wired. God knows that our default position is going to be to fall back into sinful patterns. And so this is why God says, you've got to renew your minds. Because if you don't renew your minds, you're just going to start going through life and accepting the patterns of the world, the thought patterns of the world, the action patterns of the world. All of us are pattern people. We do the same thing day in and day out. Have you ever been in a situation with someone you know well, something happens and you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly what they're going to say or how they're going to respond. Well, how do you know that? Because they've done it before and that's how they act and how they respond. Now, there's nothing that brings us out more than marriage thing. When you get married, at least when I, when I got married and... and the, <clears throat> For a perfect person, it's, it's hard, but there was some issues. Thing that uh, so we got married, and every once in a while, once in a while, there was a disagreement. Thing and is it is a disagreement. Well, every once in a while, when I supposedly made a mistake, thing, um, so I would get corrected on the mistake. My initial default position is what? Uh, my default position is always to get defensive. Thing I got a little streak of anger in me, and I would get defensive automatically. It's a pattern that I have developed in my life. It's not healthy. But as a pattern developed in the marriage, I, you, you see it really quickly, really clearly, and there's no one better to point it out than your spouse, spouse because they know how you're going to respond. But that's not a pattern that's acceptable. And so because when I become aware of that pattern, I've got to become, I say, start asking God, God, start working on me here, God. Give me the ability that when I'm confronted to not automatically respond with defensiveness, but rather say, hey, does the shoe fit? in this situation. Your pattern this morning might not be to respond with defense and anger, but you probably have a different pattern in some area of your life. We need to ask God to renew our minds today, that we'd fall into his pattern, not the ways of the world. We love to do things the way we've always done them. The question is, do those patterns reflect the ways of God? We should assume nothing. I used to work at the fairgrounds in uh, Albert Lee, Minnesota during high school, and I was in college a little bit in the summer. And when I started there, the other guys that worked there were all north of 75. And there's nothing wrong with being north of 75. It's a great age, I hear. Thing. But uh, when you're north of 75, it seems like you do things the same way quite a bit. Thing. They had been at the fairgrounds for a long time. And so we started working there, and they, we did things their way. Well, there's cattle shows. So we were in charge of when there's cattle shows, of watering the arena down in between shows so there wasn't so much dust. And, uh, and so this was going on. During that, we'd have to take all the bleachers out, get all of the people out, bring in hoses and sprinklers. We did this a couple times, and I'm going, this, there's got to be an easier way. I mean, you're driving the tractor out the door. Everybody's standing around the shed watching you do this. And not that I ever did this, but when you kind of nick the side of the building thing, everybody's like, hey, watch where you're going. Thing. And so I'm thinking, there's got to be an easier way to do this. So I approached one of, the, one of the older gentlemen and I said, hey, you know, instead of dragging the hoses out and the sprinklers out every time, what if we put a sprinkler up in the 
ceiling and just attached all of the hoses up there. No, we, uh, we've been doing this since I showed cattle here. That never worked. Can't, can't do it. And I'm like, all right, just do it your way. Well, last week, I went back to the Freeborn County Fair to take my young daughter to a couple cattle shows of some cousins. We go and watch the cattle show saying, well, they're not dragging hoses or sprinklers out anywhere. I look up, what's in the ceiling? Sprinklers and hoses. It just took a little different idea and a renewal of the thought process to get a different way. The same is true in all of our hearts and all of our minds today. All of us have patterns and ways of living that do not glorify God. The question is, are we allowing God's Word to renew our minds so we can understand His patterns and His ways? The reason that we're so big on saying, hey, read your Bibles. It's not so that we can take a quiz every week when we get here of who's who in the Bible. It's because through the Bible, our minds are renewed. Christianity is a thinking religion. God gave, revealed himself through the written word. We have to use our minds. And God wants us to use our minds. And so God is challenging us to renew ourselves in the truth that he has given to us. God's word is basically saying, hey, in light of everything God has done for us, we should offer ourselves as an act of worship our whole life and allow ourselves to be renewed so we can begin living in new patterns, in new ways. And now the rest of the chapter basically unpacks what these new ways of living are. We're not going to go through the whole chapter today. We're going to jump down to verses 9 through 13. So if you go in your Bibles there to verses 9 through 13, we're just going to pull out a couple of the exhortations here. And then next week we'll jump back up to verses 3 through 8. So verses 9 through 13, one of the first ones that's found here in verse 9, he says, Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And you might say, well, obviously we, shouldn't, we should be against that which is bad. But we want to point something out here this morning, though. What he's talking about here is objective evil. Notice he does not say, Abhor what is evil in your sight. He says, have a distaste for that which is evil. In other words, there is evil that is objective, that it should be evil in everyone's eyes. We live in a day and age where we go around saying to one another, what's wrong for you may not necessarily be wrong for me. God is saying, no, you should have a distaste for all evil. Evil is not subjective. It's not up for debate what is evil. Evil is evil. And the word he uses here is this idea of having a distaste. Now, I've got some interesting dietary needs. And uh, when I was dating my, my wife, we went down to meet her grandparents for the first time. And I thought, this is pretty safe. Her grandparents are good farm folk thing. It's going to be meat and potatoes. This will be safe. Well, we get down there, nice meat and potatoes and corn. I'm thinking, fabulous. Grandma and I are going to get along really well. Thing. This is a sealed deal. Thing. Well, then she brings out pie with warm fruit in it. I'm thinking to myself, well, shouldn't she be bringing out chocolate? So here, what do I have to do? First time there, you can't reject the pie. So I have got to go piece by piece through this warm fruit pie. As that warm fruit's going down, it's almost coming back up at the exact same time. I'm sure that's true for everyone. It's like more water after each bite. You're holding the napkin really close. 
I'm sure everybody has something like that in your life, that immediately when it goes in, there's this automatic distaste for it. What the Apostle Paul is saying is that automatically when there's evil, there should be this distaste for it. The problem is this. We've started treating evil like I treat that warm fruit pie. I didn't say a word. I just ate it and swallowed really hard. The Christian church has just started swallowing really hard about evil. Oh, it bothers us a little bit on the way down, but once it's there, eh, nothing we can do about it. But the word that's used here for how much we should be against evil requires speaking out against evil. Sad reality is, the very things that entertain us the majority of the time, the very things that we glorify, are the very things that we should have a distaste for. To live a life of worship is to have a distaste for evil, for things that are not of God. Not only should we have a distaste for evil, but we should hold fast to what is good. In other words, we should should run to it. We should grab on and have a stranglehold on that which is good. We should stand up and shout and promote that which is beneficial for everyone, or in other words, that which is good. A life of worship embraces that which is good and rejects that which is evil. And then we'll get a couple of more exhortations here. We'll just cover a couple of them. Look with me, if you would, down at verse 12. So verse 12 He says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Kind of just basically giving command after command here, but each of these commands reflects a greater truth about what God has done for us. So he says, rejoice in hope. In other words, he's saying, hey, you should be able to have joy all the time because your joy is not dependent upon circumstances. Your joy is what? In your hope. And nothing can rob your hope. Nothing can take the future that we have, the resurrection in Christ and in His new kingdom. Therefore, nothing can steal our joy. So we should be joyful people because we have a hope. And not only should we be joyful people because we have a hope, but now the hard one. We should be people who are patient in the midst of tribulation. The Apostle Paul just assumes here that there's going to be difficulty. Patience is one of the most difficult things, I think, for all of us, right? We want the microwave rather than the crock pot. But where does it taste better coming from? The crock pot. God does not promise us instantaneous success or instantaneous calmness. But the Apostle Paul is saying here is, you've got to learn to wait in the midst of difficulty. The ability to to wait and not cause anxiety and worry. Are you a good waiter? Can, can, you, can you sit and, and just wait? And the only way we can sit and just wait is if we're certain of the outcome. It's the only way you can really wait, if you're certain of the outcome. If you're uncertain of the outcome, what happens? Anxiety. So when I was a little kid, my grandparents used to always come out to Sioux Falls. And we lived in a house that had a big... Um, picture 
picture window kind of in it and the driveway where they drive up in. Back in those days, there was no cell phones and Grandpa wouldn't have owned one anyhow. So anyhow, they would drive out here to Sioux Falls. And I remember when Grandma and Grandpa were coming, it was a big deal thing because then we got to do everything. Grandpa was going to take us everywhere and anywhere. So when we knew Grandma and Grandpa were coming that day, we were in front of that widow window all day long. When are they coming? Where are they at? And it was just constant, Mom, when are they going to be here? Thing. So there was this anxiousness for them to come, but at the exact same time, there was this certainty that they are going to arrive because they had delivered time after time after time. And we can wait patiently because we have certainty in the promises of God because God has delivered, because Jesus has conquered death. He is not in the grave. Because of the certainty of the promises of God, we can wait in the midst of tribulation. And then he says, be constant in prayer. And right, everybody's like, well, obviously, pastor, we should pray. I mean, all of us are quick to what? We will pray for you. But are we quick to pray? In the New Testament, there's this real interesting shift with prayer. In the Old Testament, when you pray, it's like gathering at the temple. You've got to go get the priest. You've got to get access to get through and make your request before God. Jesus comes, everything changes. So when we use the word in Jesus' name that we pray, that wasn't just something like, hey, that sounds good. The church should use that. Jesus told us to pray in his name, John 14 and 15. The reason we pray in Jesus' name is it gives us direct access to God. So in the New Testament, they use phrases like, pray without ceasing. Well, how is that possible? I got to work. Think. I got I to play golf. I got to have fun. I'll pray without ceasing. Prayer has completely changed that we can be constantly in the presence of God because Jesus has come and given us direct access. Throughout the day, we can take moments and just be in conversation with God. I would encourage you sometime, start your day in the morning by saying, God, I just want to live today in Jesus' name. Today I'm going to live in Jesus' name. I'm going to come to you at moment's notice at any time throughout the day. And just converse Throughout the day, Heavenly Father, give me strength as I go in here. Lord, enable me to be honest as I enter into this next conversation. Lord, take this temptation from me. We should be in constant conversation with our Heavenly Father. Be constant in prayer. A life of worship is one that has a distaste for evil, clings to what is good. We're people of joy. We are people who can wait because we're people who are constantly in prayer. And we'll look at one final exhortation here, verse 13. It says, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I'd like you to write two words down this morning if you're taking notes. The first word I'd like you to write down is inward. Notice what it says here. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Saints means contribute to the needs of other Christians. Throughout the whole New Testament, there's this great emphasis on caring for other Christians. We see it in the book of Acts. What do they do? They sell all their possessions and give to one another in the church. There's this radical care that they have for one another. In the church, people should look at us and go, wow, who are all those friends that are constantly taking care of you? Do you have people that are caring for you? Do you have people that know you intimately? This morning, I would challenge you to answer a question. Most everybody here would probably raise their hand if I ever said, have you been within church fellowship? Everybody's been in a fellowship hall. Everyone's been in the fellowship hour having coffee. 
but some have never truly experienced fellowship. The word fellowship literally means one, to be one with one another. So if you're going to experience fellowship with other people, you have to know other people. You can't just talk about the Viking score and the weather. So the question for you this morning is this. Does anyone else know your greatest struggle and challenge? Does anyone else know your greatest struggle and challenge? God wants others to know our struggles and our challenges because we were not created to carry the burdens alone. So if we are going to create community, it requires vulnerability. Stepping up and say, hey, this is where I struggle right now. Or hey, this is where I'm rejoicing. Rejoice with me. It takes leadership, someone to step up and say, I'll be vulnerable. There's this great inward focus in the church that we, we care for one another in such a way that we meet one another's needs. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Take care of one another. So an inward thing, but at the exact same time, then notice what it focuses on. Seek to show hospitality, so at the exact same time, there should be this outward openness that is radical. Outward openness that is radical. Hospitality is taking someone that's a stranger and making them a family member. I've heard it said, people have said to me, man, we're really hospitable. You can't say that about a friend. You can't say a friend... And this this stranger is necessary for hospitality. Your friend is being friendly. Your friend is exhibiting care. You exhibit hospitality when there's a stranger. The question is not, are we opening our homes to people we know? Are we opening our homes and lives to people we don't know? That's radical hospitality. And this morning, a life of worship is one where we care for one another in ways that the world does not understand. The world says, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. The scriptures says, carry one another's burdens. Contribute to one another's needs. We care for one another in ways the world does not understand. And at the exact same time, we've got a radical openness to strangers that they would somehow become our family members. A life of worship is a life where we have a distaste for that which is evil. We cling to that which is good. We have joy because we have hope. We're able to wait because we're in constant prayer. And we have inward and an outward focus. The quality of our worship at King of Glory is not judged by the music. The quality of our worship is not judged by if you leave here feeling good. The quality of our worship is judged on Tuesday afternoon and Thursday night when we are living lives of worship. In light of God's mercy, an invitation is made. An invitation is made to come and offer ourselves, our bodies, as a living sacrifice to God to live a life of worship. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are thankful that